You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome to Money and Meaning. This is your host, Lindsay Smalling. We all have blind spots, and running a 3,000-person conference for the last seven years, I've become very aware of many of my own. At SOCAP 16, which was in the months following the protests of the Keystone Pipeline at Standing Rock, Indigenous leaders came to SOCAP and made me aware for the first time of the concept of land acknowledgement. SOCAP takes place at the Fort Mason Center, which recognizes and celebrates its history as part of the U.S. military, but less often acknowledges the Native peoples who lived on that land, their traditions, and their history. A land acknowledgement by a Native leader from the tribes that called the area around Fort Mason home allows everyone at our event to become aware of the complicated history of where we are and is a recognition that all lands are Native lands. We've had a land acknowledgement at SOCAP ever since 2016, and in the last two years, we've also added programming focused on Indigenous communities. It's been an incredible addition to our programming to be inclusive of perspectives that can share the experience of Indigenous communities and that offer Native wisdom and insight around social and environmental challenges. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Crystal Echohawk, founder of Illuminative, and Nick Tilson, president and CEO of NDN Collective. Both of their organizations are so unique and inspiring. I'm excited to share this conversation with you. I hope it shines a light on some blind spots, and I encourage you to learn more about their work. We have additional links and resources on the blog. Let's just start with talking about what it is your initiatives are. I think that'll get us into a lot of the um, the heart of the conversation. So, Crystal, you run an organization, Illuminative. Tell us, where did Illuminative start? What was sort of the origin for that? Yeah, so um, really Illuminative was born out of uh, a project that uh, we we did um, called the Reclaiming Native Truth Project. And it was um, the largest public opinion research and strategy uh, setting project ever done uh, regarding Native peoples and done by and for Native peoples. And so this was something that my my consulting from Equihawk Consulting, we designed and, and, and co-led um, starting back in, in 2016. And really the, the root of it was, I think, so many of us working and organizing um, in, in, from different vantage points across Indian country, across a myriad of issues. I think we've, we've consistently always felt this invisibility of Native peoples and how our issues are, are not taken very seriously or not part of the, the conversation and just... A sense of frustration, and I think through a lot of conversations through different colleagues, we really realize and understand that we need to get into the minds of diverse sets of Americans and inside key institutions and levers of power to really understand what do people really think about Native people and why, right? And and how do we really begin to look at how we really begin to have a better understanding of, of public perception and opinion around Native people, um, so that we can really then look at how do we begin to move hearts and minds? How do we educate people? And so that's what the Reclaiming Native um, Truth Project did. It was a $3.3 million project. And 
my good uh, friend here, uh, Nick Tilson, was um, one of the members of our National Advisory Committee on that project as well. And the, we published the findings um, last year, which I can talk more about. But um, but really, you know, it really created a a, a roadmap um, for how we need to go about approaching narrative change in this country, and that we need to absolutely tackle the issues of invisibility and and false narratives and and um, stereotypes that fuel racism and discrimination against Native peoples. And so out of that work and a very clear roadmap for how we needed to move forward, um, Illuminative was born. And that's, we're just over a year old now, and our mission is about fighting the invisibility um, and uh, and stereotypes um, against Native peoples and to really increase the the visibility of contemporary Native peoples and the incredible things that we have happening in our communities and our tribal nations today. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about some of those findings? You're sort of alluding to them there, but I found them fascinating. Yeah. So our top finding, you know, in this research project, we did everything from focus groups to, you know, social listening across a myriad of like 400 plus channels on social media to interviewing members of Congress to sitting federal judges and law clerks and leaders in philanthropy and business. Um, it was really a 360 sort of conversation and, and, and research process. And what we found is that um, invisibility is actually one of the biggest barriers that Native peoples face, and that nearly 80% of Americans know little to nothing about Native peoples. Um, 72% rarely or never encounter information about Native peoples. Uh, schools, you know, K-12 through schools in the United States, nearly 90% don't teach about Native Americans past 1900. And, you know, that's a very big system, right, of which generation after generation of Americans are, are passing through. And essentially, most Americans sort of relegate Native Americans to kind of these ancient, you know, civilizations in which we no longer exist. Um, and, and that has a very devastating and harmful uh, effect. And, and then we look into pop culture and media and representation of, of Native people within that is between zero and 0.04%. Um, and that kind of little sliver of representation that does show up is typically, again, pre-1900 portrayals of Native peoples are typically very stereotypical and problematic. You know, these these tropes about magical, mystical Indians or you know, Native people as alcoholics or a, a myriad of just really negative um, representations. And that is really the only sort of data points that most Americans get about Native peoples, or they see racist sports mascots, or, you know, these images at Halloween as people don red face and put on Halloween costumes. And so that is really, it's those kind of limited representations, or it's just complete erasure and invisibility um, that creates this really fundamentally deep misunderstanding or a lack of, of knowledge about Native peoples by Americans. Um, and what our research found after we worked with um, some really renowned social psychologists, we were able to really begin to understand that this invisibility, this very profound erasure that's you know institutionalized by K-12 through education and media and pop culture actually serves to fuel bias and racism. Um, it serves the the profound invisibility serves to really dehumanize Native peoples in most people's eyes. And as we went out and surveyed them, we found that people, when asked about Native American issues, including just basic access to employment and healthcare and just basic things we take for granted, that people were less supportive because they they couldn't really 
connect with Native peoples because they don't exist in their minds. Um, and so it was really through this understanding about how harmful the invisibility you know, is on top of this, just, you know, these very harmful stereotypes and false narratives out in the American public that we, we found that we need, we absolutely need to change these. These are, they're having concrete consequences when we look at everything from the way that decisions are made in federal courts to members of Congress admitting that invisibility is a very big factor um, within Congress and the way that it deals with, with native peoples to in philanthropy. I mean, we openly interviewed a lot of senior leadership within philanthropy that very much admitted that these sort of, that either Native peoples are not present in their minds or they are kind of governed by the the limited stereotypes and information that they get. And so um, we really, it was a, a big wake up call, I think, for all of us. I think we you know, for Native people working on different issues, I think we intuitively knew that these, this, you know, these experiences that we're having, but now we have the evidence now that we have the data that really shows um, how harmful this is and that we really need to work to address it. Yeah. And I want to come back to that, that narrative change piece, um, having that data, but then that, those additional findings of how can you make people more familiar? And I think you have some things that people are actually really have high interest levels to learn more about Native peoples, which is is positive coming out of that research. But I want to move over to Nick because so many of the areas that Crystal just spoke to um, are really core to the NDN collective, um, those issues of racial equity, of education equity, climate justice. Um, can you tell us a little bit about NDN collective, how that started and and how it's evolved? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, greet you in my Lakota language. I'm calling in today from my home community here in Porcupine, here in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Um, yeah, the background, the, the the background of the Indian Collective of really grew out of grew out of the movement of, of indigenous people that were de- dedicated to building indigenous power. And so my my background is really as a community organizer. Um, and that's sort of how I see the world and how I see uh, the, of how to build power amongst our communities and our movements and our people. And that work, I got to be part of a small group of people on Pine Ridge reconnecting a lot of young people to culture, spirituality, identity. And that then led to the creation of an organization called the Thunder Valley Community Development Corporation that started doing place-based community development based in indigenous values and community wealth building, where we started worker-owned enterprises, building affordable housing, local food systems, and connected this work to a broader movement for social change in Indian country. And as that model was being uplifted over time, we started being reached out to by communities. And so we, you know, over a period of about three years, uh, when we were at Thunder Valley, uh, we were reached out to by about 43 different tribes, 27 different Native nonprofits coming from over 70 different Indigenous communities who were trying to do something similar to what we were doing, but within the context of their own culture, climate, and spirit of place. And, uh, and, 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 and so we started thinking about what is it, you know, what is it, what does it mean to do that? We also at that time had about 40 plus philanthropic and impact investing partners who are, of course, asking the inevitable question of this entire industry, which is how do you scale impact in these places? 
And so we ha- so there was this sort of perfect storm that was building, and then also uh, enter Standing Rock happened at that exact same time, at the end of the sort of three years of this uh, uh, momentum building. And so as an organizer, as an organization that had capacity, we found ourselves as on the ground organizers in the you know in the midst of this big international moment and an historic moment for indigenous people uh, in which we interrupted the narrative. And so after Standing Rock and even before Standing Rock, going to the drawing table and saying what 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 is actually needed to move capital and move impact uh, in, in native communities. And so I really came to the conclusion when I looked at the data of looking at the extreme underinvestment of Native people, which even right now, like in philanthropy, it's less than 0.4% of all philanthropy in the country uh, from institutional philanthropy goes to Native people. And uh, it has never breached 1%. And yet we are the first peoples of this land. And so the world of philanthropy and impact investing has pretty much ignored Indigenous people um, altogether. And so, you know, when I looked at this challenge and problem and you know i'll also say this like folks like me and crystal have been engaged with philanthropy our entire lives uh since especially our entire sort of careers as adults um to try to get philanthropy to change and support our work and i really just came to the conclusion that i don't believe that philanthropy in the world of impact investing is actually just going to change that we actually have to build indigenous-led uh, philanthropic and impact investment funds that are led by indigenous people for indigenous people because we have lived experience in doing that work. And there's something that impact investing and in, and philanthropy looks a lot different when it's coming from the people closest to the pain, closest to the problem, um, and working arm in arm with communities to work closer and closer to the solution. And so that's what the Indian Collective is really all about. We are a collective um, and, our or- and an organization that's made up of six different entities, the NDN Foundation, which is dedicated to moving philanthropy. Um, and, and we're in the process of building a $50 million annual grant-making fund dedicated for Indigenous people. Um, we're in the process of some- developing something called the Indian Fund, which is a national CDFI that'll, that'll be an investment arm of the Indian Collective, building a $100 million loan fund dedicated to uh, building the capacity of Native communities and investing in the communities in the form of loans. Um, And then our uh, Indian Action, which is our action organizing and advocacy arm, which is dedicated to moving policy and um, supporting frontline activism work um, in organizing to move policy for the benefit of Indigenous communities and people. And our last component is Indian Partners, which is our for-profit arm that's wholly owned by the nonprofit. So if you imagine, you know, in the world of philanthropy and impact investing, you know, this is a hybrid model, a blended capital model solution um, by and for indigenous peoples. And to sort of tie this work back to the work uh, of illuminative and or narrative change, that we know fundamentally that uh, that in order to truly have lasting impact, we have to change the power dynamics that exist in philanthropy and 
the power dynamics that exist in the world of impact investing, because even just from a pure organizing standpoint, there is an absolute disproportionate amount of power, privilege, and white supremacy, quite frankly, that's living in philanthropy and the world of impact investing. And so it's fundamental that we change that and challenge that and create new systems that are by and for the people. And, um, and that's what the Indian Collective is. We also understand that we have to build our own platforms while influencing other media and media and storytelling platforms so that we can tell the stories, authentic, raw stories of indigenous people that are, and our grantees and our fellows and, and all of the different things that are happening in Indian country. So that's the other big part of what Indian Collective is doing is we're building a platform um, to be to tell unapologetic stories of real life indigenous people that are change makers and changing the world, but doing all of that in the context of building equity and justice, because this idea of investing into indigenous self-determination for us to become the architects of our own future with an equity and justice lens will actually transform the entire industry and begin to transform and change systems around the world when indigenous people are actually supported in ways that they have never been throughout history. I love that you um, that you say you know the the sort of existing power systems, existing philanthropy, impact investing aren't have ignored us, so we're just going to do it ourselves. Doing it yourself is really hard. Like <laughs> there's you know just sort of operating outside of the systems and gathering resources, and you've got all of these different initiatives. Um, I guess my my mind just first goes to. Where where has that felt like the wind was at your back? And where has that felt like you were coming up against challenges everywhere? Because I've also heard, you know, uh, talking about indigenous peoples isn't one peoples. It's lots of different communities with very different traditions and geographies and politics and all of those things. So I have a million questions, but sort of where has this felt like you were on you know, the right track and things were falling for you? And, and where were they definitely not? Well, I, I guess I would, I would say um, that changes. The wind of where it lies changes every day and in what communities we're in and what spaces that we are in. Um, uh, the short of it would be this. I feel like, one, that we're entering into this with our own power. So we're not coming into this ha- ha- um, as victims, and we're not going coming into this as if we don't have any power. It's actually quite opposite. We're coming into this knowing we have or that we're standing on the shoulders of giants and the generations that have come before us and our ancestors. And so we come into this feeling that we are absolutely powerful in coming into a space. Um, just because this space hasn't included indigenous people like it should, it doesn't mean that we're not powerful. In fact, we feel like that the world of philanthropy and impact investing has more to learn from us than us to learn from it, um, but that in partnership we can create change. So one, it's the context in which we come into it. Um, I think that we create a different added value, meaning I think that you can analyze the world of philanthropy and impact investing and, you know, I know that like the book Winners Take All and the book Decolonizing Wealth that have been really popular over this last year and a half challenge whether those systems have actually been effective at creating at, at solving problems, period. And so um, to me, I think that the Indian collective and what our added value proposition is 
that these systems have not been effective at solving problems. And the byproduct of that has also been Native communities haven't been supported. And so I think about this as in partnership of us extending our hand rather than just doing it as, a, as outsiders. There's an opportunity here. We're extending our hand and giving an opportunity for the world of philanthropy and impact investing to do something radically different than they have ever done before. Because what they have, it, the, the data shows that the, what they have done before has not actually contributed to solving the problems that we're trying to solve in this world um, with increased climate change, with the, gap, the separation gap between the rich and the poor increasing uh, with education outcomes nationally becoming lower and lower and lower. And so um, I look at this as a way of creating opportunity. And I feel like that has, you know, at the same time we challenge, you know, power, privilege, and white supremacy in these places, we are also extending our hand in partnership and creating added value in a way. Um, and I feel like partners that understand the big picture of why, why Indigenous-led impact investing, Indigenous-led philanthropy is, is important, um, then that changes the dynamic. I mean, we've been around for uh, 18 months, and just as of today, uh, past, the, past the mark of raising $14 million. Congratulations. So yeah, this is like exciting, right? Like it's a, it's a drop in a bucket where we're going, but it's showing that, that there's an appetite for this, that, that people are interested in challenging themselves in something different. I think internally within indigenous communities, one of the huge things that we have to overcome is a culture of scarcity, that there's a culture of scarcity that lives amongst our, our communities and movements, and rightfully so, because for so long, we have been underinvested for so long, there is a culture of scarcity that we're trying to break through and bring new resources and new money to the table. And I think when I look at the whole arc of this, I am extremely hopeful for where we can be. Because if you look at, we're in the, we're in the beginning process, or sort of the first five years that over the next 20 years is going to be the biggest transfer of wealth in human history. And we're also, also at a time where people are challenging the institution of philanthropy, challenging the institution of impact investing, and a lot of these things are emergent. So there's an opportunity here um, that think that we can change and create new systems and new structures that are radically different than they, than they were before. And as long as we submit ourselves to always being in the place of learning and growing, then we can learn and grow together and create real impact in the world. Where you started with the value add, we've seen that so much curiosity. And I think this ties to both of your work. Um, that people want to engage and I think they just intuitively sense that there's so much um, wisdom and tradition and just a different viewpoint on the world to offer that we've seen huge engagement at SOCAP. And I'd like to think the best of people that there is sort of this systemic invisibility, but that in the ways that both of you are saying, hey, here's a thing, we're extending a hand, um, you should engage, you can engage that there's going to be there's going to be a response to that. But I'd love to hear more about the ways that you're working together. So Crystal, you mentioned that Nick was on the advisory board, but how does sort of, you know, the evolution of um of Illuminative and the intersection with NDN collective, what does that look like? 
Well, I think as, you know, Nick was visiting about, I mean, we, we very much, I think from as individuals, but also organizationally, we share a particular worldview um, about us as indigenous peoples and just really looking in this moment where I think we feel like, you know, we've grown up in philanthropy, right? We've spent our career and there's been certain a rhythm and pattern. And I feel like for the majority of my career, it's the same statistic we're always quoting about 0.03% of philanthropic dollars. And it's just this constant, um, you know, kind of a hamster wheel. I feel like we're often in as Indian country, right? And we just sort of kind of feel like we're getting these scraps and really not, you know, um, included and, and valued in these kind of conversations. And while at the same time, we're watching just remarkable and innovative and important work happening in our communities. Um, and so I think it's just really sort of enough is enough. And, and really this, the sense is we need to do things differently. Uh, we need to step up and have courage and, and, and not be afraid and to really not be afraid to try new things. And so I think, you know, it's just generationally, I think, you know, it's just, there's something that I think Nick and I both connect about. And, you know, I think Illuminative is a year younger than Indian. We're both still relatively new organizations, but it's been really exciting. Um, and I think at, at the end of it, we just, we really share core values and, and, and the kind of larger vision we, we see for Indian country and the change um, that needs to happen. And, and, you know, there's sort of this wonderful kind of courage and fearlessness, I think that we, we share um, in this, in this work and this journey. And it's been great, great to have him as a, just a colleague and a partner. Nick, anything you'd add there? Yeah, for sure. The famous quote, right? Partnerships move at the speed of trust. Like that couldn't be any more real than in the relationship between me and Crystal and the relationship between NDN and Illuminative, where um, when you look at the ecosystem that is needed for to create radical transformation for indigenous people and therefore creating radical transformation in the world, it is important that the, that folks that are moving resources and doing movement building work on uh, on the ground in these different places are also deeply connected to the folks that are trying to move them to move a national narrative. Because you imagine NDN collective organizers, activists, grantees, fellows, social entrepreneurs, in which these community of practitioners that we're coming from, we're so focused on keeping our head down, doing our work, that we need a we need a we need to tie into a strategy to amplify our message, so that us as activists, organizers, social entrepreneurs, teachers, educators, artists have the ability to get our voices and our work amplified, and that we hope that our work is contributing to changing the narrative because we're actually actively working to change the outcomes in our communities, and that's where this partnership is so fundamental and uh, fundamental because. You know, we could be doing awesome work of changing the world and nobody know about it and have it not contribute to changing narratives and changing the outcomes of our communities and our people. And so, you know, it's like it's like this uh, this tug and pull. You know, that's why I think that we look at our organizations like brother and sister, cousin relationships, because we understand absolutely the importance in, of building and changing narrative over time. Um, yet we, we're staying really in our lane of being really focused on make, on moving resources to folks that are doing in the ground work, to folks that are doing narrative work, to doing to folks that are doing activism work, and making sure that our that our work uh, t 
to work to build national narratives and move resources and build movements, that those things are intertwined and interlocked together. And so that's what I would say is um, really fundamental about these partnerships. And I think that also like in demonstrating that we're trying to break a culture of, of scarcity, like being able to lean on each other, being able to make sure that we're actually demonstrating and practicing what good, healthy relationships look like between Indigenous leaders and Indigenous organizations is the impact of that is fundamental too. And it creates an ecosystem and an environment for donors, investors, partners um, that is way more conducive and builds more and more power um, as we go along the way. Yeah. And I hear in some of your comments, Nick, I'm curious on narrative change, there seem to be sort of two efforts here. There's there's an internal narrative change where changing this narrative of scarcity with indigenous communities is a huge narrative change effort that you're both potentially working on. And Crystal, you're also highlighting this external narrative change. So within Illuminative, how do you balance that? Or how um, are those two complementary in some ways? They're absolutely um, not only complementary, uh, complimentary. I mean, it's it's so important that they run in tandem. And I think, you know, as we really looked at our research and as we've built our work, you know, we understand that one of the biggest priorities is that internalized narrative change. We need to have an Indian country and, and beyond a culture of scarcity when we are in a society in which we are completely erased. Our children wake up every day and don't see themselves reflected anywhere in the society. Native peoples don't see ourselves. And then when we do, we're caricatures. We're all of these things. And that that takes a toll on us as a people, right? How profound that is. And so we understand that so much a part of this important work we're doing, you know, for Illuminative, we focus on narrative change, particularly within K through 12, education, pop culture, and media. Those are our three priorities around narrative change. We know that that's so important in the work we do that when we can create positive representation within Hollywood, right? That that has an important impact on our, on our native people and our, in particular our native young people, right? Because that is, that's a core. We need to really internalize this new narrative as we talk about where we see ourselves as contemporary, you know, diverse, complex, amazing people, right? With amazing stories and things that we're doing. And we need, we need that that narrative change for ourselves. We need to be able to see ourselves more and that's important. And at the same time, we, we need to put that equal priority on focusing on external society um, and, and non-native people and doing that work around narrative change. And you really can't effectively have transformation one without the other. I mean, they're really um, working hand in hand and that's why, you know, that's our work at Illuminative. But you know, again, it is brother and sister organizations and in terms of how Indian is really working to change that narrative in so many different ways and so concretely, right, in terms of the strategies that they're that they're working through the Indian Foundation and, and the other ways in which they're approaching this work. And it's 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 really exciting. And I get inspired as, you know, when as Nick is is talking about like as we start to think about this ecosystem. And it's really about this kind of radical transformation of it's a new way we want to work with one another in Indian country. Right. We don't want to buy into a culture of scarcity, which isn't something that's created by us. <laughs> right. It's created by philanthropy and the world of business and all of these kinds of things that really kind of create these conditions. And I think sometimes inadvertently or, you know, um, even the best of intentions can really 
um, foster that and perpetuate that culture of scarcity outside institutions um, that are coming in to, you know, seek to make, you know, charitable contributions or impact investing can sometimes really um, trigger some negative, you know, types of, of dynamics. And so I think as, you know, working with Indian and, and I think we're really calling into the circle more and more Native organizations that we really want to hold strong together about not only in the good ways that we work together and collaborate and have transparency um, and, and candor and all of those good things in our work, but that at the same time, we also really want to convey how important that is when we work with, with non-Native institutions and allies, right, around those core values and the new way that we want to really engage in relationship building and partnership and investment into our work and our communities. And it's just, it's really really an exciting time. And I've been in philanthropy now for more years than I'd want to admit. And I just, I find this to be an incredibly exciting time, ripe with opportunity um, to make, you know, big investments and, and big impact. And, you know, I think our research also shows that despite all this sort of profound erasure in the way that Native peoples are oftentimes excluded from these conversations and consideration, um, that actually when we look out into market information and, and audience data and, and kind of where the American public and institutions stand, we found that almost 80% of Americans want to know more about Native peoples, that we found that upwards to 75% of those under the age of 30 want to be activated and supportive of Native issues. I mean, there's something happening in this country now. And so I think you know, new organizations like Indian or Illuminative or other great work that's happening across Indian country. I think that's, there's something, there's a really exciting, um, you know, momentum that's happening. And I think hopefully that's also, you're seeing more investment on, on these kind of institutional side. And so I, I think great things are going to happen. Yeah. I'm particularly focused on this power of story piece. We made it a track at SOCAP this year, but I think, again, it was sort of my own awakening around investing in narrative change is is a huge impact lever that I think has been underinvested in overall within this space. But I want to, you know, there's much more concrete um, sort of traditional, established, um, linear <laughs> ways of of investing in these communities. And so Nick, I want to just, you know, from your perspective, both through Thunder Valley and um, just your years of experience, I know that there's some just uh, lack of movement because it feels like unfamiliar context to invest in um, indigenous communities or in native territories. And um, so what are, what are the ways that, um, that you're engaging impact investors. What are the places, I think the community development, CDFI community has been a way for, for folks to plug in, but what is sort of that landscape that as you're extending that hand that, that you're highlighting for investors? Yeah, a few different ways. I mean, I think that one, we're an organization who's talking to both sides of the house in philanthropy. So we're talking, so like when we're talking to philanthropy, Yes, we're talking to the 5% that is doing grant making, but we're also talking to the other 95% of philanthropy. Um, and then in that space, obviously, there's all kinds of impact investing conversations taking place in that space. Um, and I think that the nuances of that these endowments and funds um, that philanthropy has been, you know, sometimes at an arm's length away over time 
that sometimes the things that they're investing into, you know, on one side of the house, you're doing grant making on climate change and climate justice, yet you're still invested in the fossil fuel industry on the on the on the other side of the house. Uh, I think that over the you know, with the divestment movement growing more and more and more of those conversations happening about where where is impact that could happen. We're a unique organization um, that has places to place money on both the philanthropic side in our grant making and on the investment side in our investment side. And so, you know, talking with talking with uh, foundations and impact investing folks more and more about what does it look like to actually place um, program related investments in Indian country and looking at um, longer term, more patient capital and thinking about that as a big bet. And and so we've been talking to several foundations about that as we build the Indian uh, Collective and the Indian Foundation and the Indian Fund. uh, We're we're talking more and more about what that actually looks like. Um, And like, quite frankly, convincing folks that they actually need need to give up some capital and decision-making power as part of that Um, so that we can, our own, within our own ecosystem, use blended capital solutions. Because if you look at the place-based work that we did at Thunder Valley and quite frankly, the place-based stuff that is happening all throughout Indian country, the reality is one of the solutions of how we get across the finish line is blended capital solutions. Some people say, oh, hey, uh, you know, there's not enough happening in Indian country. We, we, we don't see a pipeline of investable projects. Um, and so part of how we're doing that with Indian Collective and with our partners is let's look at providing capacity building grants to some of these communities. And so, for example, one of the things that we are launching um, now and in, in, in 2020 is doing capacity building grants in communities that are directly impacted by the fossil fuel industry and that our communities that are in the process of doing just transition work away from, fossil, from, the, from the fossil fuel industry with the idea that we're providing grants um, into these communities in the form of capacity building grants, but on the other side, we're actually strengthening the pipeline of folks of highly investable projects that have a higher return. Um, Also, using PRIs in places on utility scale projects, kind of like we're doing with our partnership with Navajo Power, and um, looking at putting PRIs in the places uh, to do pre-development on renewable energy projects before the big money comes in and buys out these projects. It's a it's a space right there, like a nugget for awesome impact to happen. And so there's, those are just examples of some of the places and spaces that we're in. And I could probably name off 20 different projects that are happening at different stages. But it, it is this idea of of having an ecosystem of different funds at different times in a capital stack to create impact. Um, but those are just a couple examples. Those are great. Yeah, I wanted to end with some some concrete examples. Crystal, do you have, I mean, I think making it real for the listeners of this podcast, just a story of an entrepreneur, a program you're working with, anything that sort of makes this real and that's, that gives you hope to continue this work and and for where it's going. Oh, wow. Um, one particular story. I mean, I think, um, you know, when I, 
you know, a couple different things. I mean, I think I want to go back to something that you said that there's just incredible opportunities in terms of impact investing around narrative change, right? That is a major opportunity. And I cannot tell you right now, just as I kind of look at our immediate work, how many calls we're getting a week now from major studios, right? Who are hungry to develop stories and, and suddenly, and, and really understanding that the impact that narrative change and just positive representation, these stories uh, around native people, um, the impact that they can have. And, and so I just really, you know, there's so much opportunity right there um, that I really, you know, want to encourage those listeners. But for example, um, you know, we just uh, got done giving this example with the Paramount Network, right? They, through our research, they, it really moved them that where they um, gave us the resources to produce a mini documentary um, on the impact of the Keystone XL pipeline on the Fort Belknap Indian tribe. And, um, and really gave us the resources to tell that story through a native lens with an all native, you know, cast crew. Uh, director and to work in partnership with the foreign Belknap, you know, Indian community so they could tell their story about this pipeline that potentially could go cut through not only water resources, um, but their sacred cultural sites. And we were able to partner with their network, the Yellowstone TV series, and they really, um, they really gave us the license to tell the story the way that it needed to be told. And we just launched this campaign over the last two weeks. And the last statistics that I've seen were actually the third top cited um, resource on the case Keystone XL pipeline, right? But we, we, the way that we framed that conversation was really not only about the story of, of what is happening with the tribe and the fight that they're taking up to stop that, but also that, that there's a larger conversation here amongst all Americans about what do we need to do to protect our land and our water, right? And this isn't just a Native American issue. This is an issue for all Americans and to really see how we were able to open up a conversation. Um, but then it's just, it's, you know, kind of circles back around into this realm about, you know, those with the means and the resources to make these type of investments, right? When you really trust Native people to lead, right into whether it's to tell their stories or to lead in these solutions and to really place that trust that there's important things that come of that there's impact right there's there's whether it's good stories and authentic stories that resonate um, to you know real results that happen on the ground in terms of social impact and so that's just kind of you know thinking about one of the more recent examples of us partnering with a pretty major media corporation um, and then how they kind of stepped back out of the way and let us do what we needed to do. And it ended up being something that I think, um, that everyone came out a winner. That's great. Yeah. And Nick, what's, what's giving you hope right now? What's a story a recent interaction that got you fired up about what's next? The list is long, my relatives. <laughs> yeah, I'm fired up because Indian country is fired up. And I think like, I'll just to connect it back to Crystal's story, for example, um, there was something really awesome that happened in August. And, uh, and what happened in August was NDN Collective, the Indigenous Environmental Network, Indigenous Climate Action, uh, was able to convene um, a whole bunch of Indigenous activists in, in the tar sands area of all people that were impacted by tar sands related pipelines. And, it was an idea to create connectivity between these different activists to begin to build a strategy for what it looks like to, to build a collective strategy over time 
And I use just this example as one because it's connected to uh, this, the, the, the work that Crystal was doing too. Because as we look at this, you have to, you have to build bridges between your grassroots organizers, activists, tribal leaders, and narrative change as a whole. And so when I start to see like these things build upon each other, um, then it then then it creates this idea of us contributing to a larger ecosystem. Those same group of people and some of those relationships that we build in doing that work are now leading to community community renewable energy grants that Indian Collective is um, deploying throughout Indian country. Um, of directly impacted communities that are creating viable, scalable solutions in renewable energy. And that's happening both in Canada, it's happening uh, at, uh, at the resistance, it's happening at Mauna Kea in Hawaii, where as we speak at the very moment that we're in, there is um, there is Kanaka, um, Hawaiian indigenous activist working with Navajo uh, energy uh, uh, engineers Building solar trailers at the resistance at Mauna Kea to support the to support the movement there, um, funded by the Indian Collective, and that that though that that work is on the ground work, but it's also leading to systemic work that's happening over time. And so when I see these things begin to build upon each other, that's what gives me hope. And you know, the other thing was we just we just announced the you know the creation of the Indian Changemakers Fellowship Program. And that that fellowship program was to invest in two indigenous change makers in over 20 different regions throughout North America. And wow. us being a new organization, but having come out of the indigenous people's movement, when we announced the LOI, I think that we're now approaching close to 800 applicants um, for that fellowship program. And so it tells you, I mean, it, you know, these are indicators that Indian country and indigenous communities are ripe and ready for radical change in their communities. And we have to create tangible, scalable ways to invest into everyday paid people to create change. And that those fellowships will really raise that up and it addresses the invisibility too. Telling these amazing stories, giving these change makers support gets gets me fired up. And I hope we'll have a way to highlight, you know, once you select fellows, we'd love to get some of them on the podcast. Um, but thank you both so much for for the work you're doing, for joining us here, for um, extending that hand. And we're excited to have you at SOCAP 19. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Lindsay. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. We have a bunch of great sessions in the Indigenous Communities track at SOCAP 19. And we'll share more information on Crystal and Nick's work on the SOCAP blog. Head to socialcapitalmarkets.net to learn more. And we'll keep sharing stories of unlikely allies building new markets for impact here on Money and Meaning. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, 
socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.